Welcome to episode 7 of my podcast, What Would Jane Do? Now here we have a very special episode because when I was talking to David about caricature we found ourselves going on to the issue of Jane Austen and the theatre. So what follows is a conversation I had with David Taylor, a world expert on Jane Austen, about the life of the theatre in the 1790s. And we move from the uh, experience of actually going to the theatre one evening at that time and how it would be different from today to talking about the numbers of people in the theatre, thousands of people that used to attend each night, the variety that they actually saw, the role of women writers for the stage. It was one of the great breakthrough places for uh, professional women writers and also a little intriguing glimpse into the special effects employed to make the spectacle even more fascinating. And do look out for what David has to say about the use of transparencies. But then we turn to look at Jane Austen herself and the use that she makes of the theatre in her work. Uh, we see it first in Northanger Abbey, where Catherine Morland goes to visit the theatre one evening, but also it's used it to a greater plot device in Mansfield Park with the famous uh, scene where they're putting on theatricals in the house. And then we look at how the actual theatrical techniques influence Jane Austen, looking at her use of dialogue to create character. But also David makes the fascinating point about how she uses the theatrical tropes of entrances and this kind of space that the theatre uses to make its point, how she uses that in her own novels. And finally, we turn to that very vexed question of the modern adaptations, and I make David confess as to which his favourite of all is. And you may be surprised by his answer. But before we go into um, the conversation I had with him, I should explain that really Jane Austen in the theatre is so important to me as a writer. Uh, I had my own big breakthrough writing a book called The Diamond of Drury Lane, uh, soon to be a stage musical. And it was through meeting the life of the 1790s and its theatres when I read Jane Austen that I was drawn to this, to study it at a higher level in university and in the end to produce a piece of fiction. So I have huge debt of gratitude to uh, acknowledge to Jane Austen for her introducing me to the theatre. Anyway, I will leave the rest of the time now to David. Over to you, David. I'm here with David Taylor in St Hugh's College in Oxford and we're discussing today Jane Austen and the theatre. David, you've written extensively about the theatre in Jane Austen's day. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your area of speciality? So I have, um, I've written especially about the playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan, whose, whose plays are still staged now, uh, plays like The Rivals and The School for Scandal, kind of great stage comedies of the 1770s. Uh, more generally, I'm interested in and have been interested in written about the, the politics of the theatre, the relationship between political culture in, in the 18th and early 19th centuries and, and the stage, you know, how far was the stage, even though there was officially censorship in place, how far the stage was a place in which political comment, uh, political opposition um, uh, was something that was happening and was taking place. So describe what it would have been like to go to the theatre in, let's get, say, sometime in the 1790s, right. when Jane Austen is uh, living in Bath. Right. 
well, she, she lives in the Bath at the turn of the century, doesn't yes, she? But yeah. it's that kind yeah, of time. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Bath was a very important theatre. Uh, you know, the, the, the big theatres were in London, um, but there were a number of very, very significant theatres outside of London, including the one in Bath. She would have walked in uh, and she would have been uh, confronted by uh, a lit auditorium. Of course, uh, candlelight uh, was the only means of illuminating um, the theatres in this period. And that meant that even once the performance started, the, the audience would remain illuminated. And that creates a very different dynamic, which people might well be watching the audience as much as they're, that they're watching what's going on on stage. And people go particularly in the boxes um, in the expensive seats to be seen, to be a, themselves a spectacle as much as to actually see. So that's one thing that, that, that uh, Austin, in, on going to the theatre at Bath, would, would have been struck by. The noise would have been another. And this is not a quiet audience in the way that we would now expect an audience to be quiet. You know, you cough in a theatre, you might be shushed nowadays. Certainly not in, in the 18th century and, and, and the countless reports of actors having to work quite hard to silence audiences who are, are unsatisfied or who have called for some kind of repeat. Um, so it's a very different place. It, it's also, if you think about the, the time, it's a space in which you're seeing a diversity of social classes. You know, that the theatres in London are holding over 3,000 people by the turn of, of um, the turn of the century into the 19th century. Bath is smaller, but it's still uh, a space that would hold a, a lot of people uh, from a diversity of classes, from people at uh, the very highest end of, of, of the social hierarchy to people much further down. And, and there's, there's no other uh, space that's quite equivalent to that uh, in this period. And how long is the performance? So performances would go on all evening. So it would usually begin around about six o'clock in the evening. And we now go and we think about the fact we see one play. Uh, we go and see, say, Hamlet. Uh, or Hamilton. Um, at, the, uh, at that time, there would be a programme of plays throughout the evening, which would usually include a main piece, again, something like Hamlet, uh, a five-act tragedy or comedy. Uh, there would also be an, what, what was known as an afterpiece, a shorter play, usually something that was a, a comic or farcical. Um, and in between that, the, you, might, uh, you might also get dances, songs, music so you could easily be if you wanted to say for the for, for the for the entire night's program you could easily be in the theater from from six in the evening to, to half past ten even eleven o'clock in the evening of course you didn't have to stay that whole time and again part of the dynamic of of 18th century theater was that that people might well leave after the main piece or even after a few acts of the main piece or enter uh, th uh, three acts into the main piece to uh, see the end of the main piece and then watch the afterpiece. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a, f a, f a fluid and dynamic environment. And what kind of plays were they putting on in these big theatres at that time? Uh, I mean, a huge variety. I mean, variety is, is, is in many ways the word, uh, the, the key word. The, obviously, the kind of comedies that we still remember from the period, so Sheridan's comedies, Goldsmith's comedies, tragedies, now largely forgotten tragedies, or Shakespeare's tragedies, of course, were popular tragedies of what we call the Restoration period, so that the, the end of the 17th century were very popular, but also various tragedies written in the 18th century that are, that are less performed now, as well as, it's really the beginning of musical theatre, this period, um, very, very popular um, um, musical pieces. Uh, pantomimes, again, uh, uh, the 18th century is really the period that gives us the, the pantomime, very, very popular, especially at Christmas. 
so there's a, there's, there's a huge variety. I mean, something that ought to be said is that within that variety, and um, women are, are doing well, not only as actresses, but also as, as, as writers. The, the, the late 18th century is a great period for women playwrights. You have the likes of Hannah Cowley, Elizabeth Inchbold, uh, Joanna Bailey, uh, and others. So it's, it's also a time in which women are, are thriving in, in writing for the stage. And would they also have had any special effects or scenery? What's, what are they actually, how yeah. rich is what they're looking at? Uh, so that they would, uh, by the, uh, the turn of the century, by the, by the very, very beginning of the 1800s, yes, there would have been quite considerable special effects. Um, uh, lighting effects had uh, they'd experimented with various lighting effects. Uh, they'd found ways of simulating thunder and lightning, storms, um, uh, moving seas, uh, automata of various kinds to create ideas of marching armies. Um, uh, and in particular, a favourite device would be what was called a transparency. That is, um, a, a, uh, something would be painted on a large sheet of, of, of gauze-like material. Um, so that uh, it, it could be painted on both sides. And when light was projected on to the front, you'd see one image. When light was projected from the back, you would see another image. And that was one way in which, um, in the period, they would affect these kind of amazing uh, magical transitions where one scene becomes another, where something suddenly is revealed. So our era definitely doesn't have the sort of monopoly on amazing special effects. A a absolutely not. And what's interesting is, just as now sometimes that critics complain that it's all about the effects and not about the, uh, the writing. Uh, that was a common complaint in the period too, that people were concerned that it was all about um, the, 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 the spectacular entertainment and not enough about a kind of literary quality or whatever. That, that debate has been going on for hundreds of years. So turning to Jane Austen's novels themselves, where do you find um, theatrical experiences within her work? So the, 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 the two main examples would be in Northanger Abbey, uh, when Catherine Morland, uh, a kind of ingenue, is in Bath. She attends a theatre there and has an experience of, of what it's like to go to, 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 to a, a theatre of that period. The, 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 the most famous example, though, is a most important example is in Mansfield Park. Much of the, the plot in Mansfield Park revolves around uh, the characters, uh, the younger characters in that novel, uh, putting on uh, a private performance of a particular play. Private theatricals were very, very popular and common in this period, especially in the in kind of upper class uh, households, some of which even had within their, their, their large houses spaces designated for performance. Uh, but even in um, uh, middle class, what we now call middle class households, uh, you also often had private theatricals, and indeed Austin herself at Steventon, her, her kind of one of her childhood homes, um, uh, they engage regularly in, in putting on each year uh, plays of, of the period, plays by Sheridan and so forth. So uh, in Mansfield Park, the characters decide to stage a play uh, called Lover's Vows. It's a, a play, in fact, by uh, in Elizabeth Inchbold, one of the, the, the women playwrights I was just talking about. Uh, it's an adaptation of a, of a drama um, uh, 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 from the German, by a German playwright called uh, August von Kotzebue, who at the time uh, had, in England, something of a, of a, a radical um, image. He was seen to be a slightly dangerous playwright in the kinds of things he was writing about. 
and that's that it, that is exactly that slight danger to the morality of the play which is so central to the plot of the novel so that what happens is that these characters get rather drawn up drawn into um uh a kind of a frenzy of excitement about staging this this play lovers vows it allows certain of the characters uh to uh to flirt in problematic ways and perhaps most problematically of all because there's no designated theater space in uh, Mansfield Park in the, in the house itself uh, they um, dismantle bits of furniture uh, they uh, rearrange bits of Sir Thomas Bertram the head of the household study in order to create a, a theater space and what happens then is just as they're about to you know get ready to perform the play Sir Thomas who's been uh, abroad seeing to uh, his his estate his his slave plantations in uh, in Antigua uh, returns home unexpectedly and puts an end to to the to the idea of staging a play and is not happy about how how the the house has been reorganised and things have been kind of destroyed in order to make way for this theatrical enterprise. So that's the major way in which theatre f- features there. So do you think that is saying that Jane Austen doesn't like plays? Uh, not at all. So, and, and in fact, I think one of the most common misconceptions of that novel is that it's a, a novel that attacks the theatre, when in fact it's far more subtle than that. It's so clever in the way it uses theatre. But one, way, one of the ways it's using theatre is to think about questions of morality, uh, is, is to think about questions of how people perform, and performance is something which is really important to that novel more generally. But also it has a lot to do, you have to understand that it has a lot to do with the play that they choose to stage. Um, as I said, that um, this is a play that's somewhat scandalous, so that the play actually, uh, it's called Lover's Vows, but it's uh, ultimately about uh, an illegitimate child and, and a fallen woman, a woman who um, has uh, had a child out of wedlock with a local aristocrat, um, and they, at the very end of the play, have a reconciliation they, 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 against all the odds, against all uh, social logic, logic of hierarchy, they they are they are brought back together. So it's scandalous. It's scandalous in in, in kind of both moral and social terms, uh, in, in many ways. And a play which was understood at the time as as throwing into question ideas of established morality and established social order. So it has a lot to do with the play. Austen was not in any way someone who opposed the theatre. Again, as I as I said, her upbringing was uh, her upbringing at Steventon especially was so animated by the the reading and and uh, familial staging of of plays of the period, and indeed that's really important, I'd say, to her development as a writer. She's a she's a novelist, but in many ways she's also a novelist who's learned lots of her techniques through the the dramatists that she's been reading. Yes, yeah, so an interesting area, isn't it? Because when you think about how much you know of what her characters look like, it's pretty much next to nothing. I think right. Elizabeth Bennet is a pair of fine eyes is about as far as we get. Exactly. Um, whereas we know, absolutely know her from her dialogue. Absolutely. Which is a play technique. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So do you want to say which playwright she may have been particularly drawing on? I, th- I think they're the, the comic playwrights. Uh, so I've already, I mentioned Sheridan a couple of times and we know that, that Steventon, they, they, they did some of Sheridan's plays. Um, but again, probably other comic playwrights appeared, which include women like Hannah Cowley, with her, her, her brilliant play, uh, The Bell Stratagem, um, or uh, many of Elizabeth Inchbold's plays, where what's, what's important to these plays is often repartee, kind of witty dialogue, and of course the development of character through, through dialogue as well. 
Uh, and you, I think you can absolutely see that sense of, um, of uh, fast-paced uh, exchanges in, a, in lots of, uh, of Austin's works, where what's happening is not only something that can be kind of funny or even slightly tense, but also something that is uh, developing our understanding of the characters in, in highly significant ways. I think, so I think dialogue's one really important way in which Austin has learned from playwrights. I think a second is, is her use of space uh, and, and her use of surprise, of surprise entrances. I mean, I, I talked about um, Sir Thomas Bertram coming back uh, to Mansfield Park and, and interrupting the theatricals. Uh, in that novel, and that's such a dramatic entrance as he as he suddenly returns and puts an end to everything. So Austin's use of uh, space and, and and to some extent gesture, the way people walk is important. The way people read is important. Uh, you're absolutely right that physical descriptions are not significant. But what is insignificant is the way people move and interact within a given environment, uh, a drawing room or a ball uh, or a library uh, or even. Uh, uh, outdoors, uh, walking outdoors. These are the really significant ways in which, uh, which Austin uh, uh, creates her, her situations and develops her, her stories, her themes and her characters. So bearing that in mind, that there is a sort of theatrical history behind her development as a writer, what do you think about the way that her works have been turned into theatrical pieces themselves mm. during the 20th century, late 20th century and um, in our own time, I think in many ways it's uh, it's to be expected for for the reason we discussed that they because they're novels, but they're novels that really do lend themselves to um, uh, theatrical or more recently uh, televisual or cinematic adaptation. Because so much of what we learn about the characters uh, takes place through dialogue, so much is about the interaction between characters through dialogue, and also because so much is about different people moving from one space to another spaces, people perhaps being thrown into spaces that they're not familiar with. So Fanny Price, a working class girl um, uh, in Mansfield Park, suddenly finds herself in this, in this grand house. Elizabeth Bennet, uh, who you know, at a key moment in Pride and Prejudice, wanders round uh, Mr Darcy's house. And you know, he's rejected Mr. Darcy by that point. So she's wandering around it thinking, this, I could have been mistress of this. So, so the, the, the way in which Austin uses spaces, the way in which Austin uses gestures, uh, so, so readily lends itself to, um, to, to that kind of visual and dramatic adaptation that I don't think it's at all surprising that that's, that's what's been happening. So I'm going to now put you on the spot. Of all the many uh, Austin adaptations there have been, which is your personal favorite? It's a difficult question. I, th I think I would go for uh, Patricia Rosimer's 1999 uh, uh, adaptation of Mansfield Park, a novel which, perhaps because I'm someone who spends so much time immersed in the theatre of the period, has always been my own personal favourite of Austen's novels. Um, what's fascinating about that uh, Rosimer's adaptation, which has uh, the actress uh, Frances O'Connor as as the heroine Fanny Price, uh, and also the, the the great Nobel Prize winning uh, playwright Harold Pinter as Sir Thomas, a, a very angry and and rather uh, unnerving uh, Sir Thomas Bertram. What's great is that it it it, um, it pushes uh, with uh, at what's what's possible in in adapting Austen's fiction, and it isn't at all really faithful to the narrative, though it may well be faithful to some of the, the novels. 
uh, deeper themes and concerns. So it, it really in particular draws out uh, the issue of slavery, which, is, which uh, people like me, critics like me, have been interested in in the past 20 years in, in Austin's narrative. In Austin's novel, the aspect of slavery is only touched upon very briefly. And of course, we know that Sir Thomas uh, leave Mans- Mans- leaves Mansfield Park to go and visit his, his plantations in, in an- an- Antigua. In the film, uh, we see uh, Fanny Price um, asking uh, Harold Pinter's Sir Thomas more directly about uh, the slave trade. We see Sir Thomas as a, a figure troubled by uh, um, what he's seen there. Uh, also, uh, Sir Thomas's son, also equally troubled uh, by, by the kind of brutality he's seen in Antigua. And at, and at one point, um, we even see uh, Fanny looking at engravings by, by William Blake showing the, uh, the torture and execution of, of the enslaved in that period. So it, what it does is, is render Mansfield Park as a very explicitly political work. And I think that's a fascinating reading of Austen's novel. Yes, and adaptations need to do something new. Don't absolutely, they? absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Pleasure. So that's it for episode seven of What Would Jane Do? And great thanks to David Taylor for spending so much time talking about the things we both absolutely love. Uh, But we had great fun doing that. But as I am sure you'll agree, he made a great uh, and very authoritative, knowledgeable interlocutor. Anyway, um, this is the end of the first season of What Would Jane Do? I hope you've enjoyed these podcasts. I'll be returning to them in the autumn. If you have any ideas about subjects you'd like me to explore please do let me know uh, otherwise don't forget when in doubt you can always ask yourself what would Jane do